Amen, indeed. When there seems to be no way, there's God making a way for us. I've got to get my notes in order here. Well, it is Family Sunday. In honor of that, I think I need to start today with some fun jokes for our children which will simultaneously be received as cringy jokes by our teenagers. I have a reason for that, teens. My thought is if I start at the lowest point possible at the beginning in the sermon, it could only get better. Agreement? Thanks, Sam. Okay. So, kids, first service didn't really like my jokes too much, so I'm hoping you'll like them. What did the baby corn say to mama corn? Somebody already likes it. All right. Where's popcorn? That's what. <laughs> nice. I didn't have drums in the first service. We needed that. That was good. Excellent timing. I have two more. You can't leave yet. It's a math one, so you might want to think about this. How do you make seven even? Get rid of the S. My favorite. You need to know that there are 26 letters in the alphabet to understand this joke, though. I only know 25 letters in the alphabet. I don't know why. That one's pretty good. That's it. We're good. <laughs> Why start with dad jokes? Well, the text this morning is going to start with a word that I think has a little bit of a corny element to it. You'll, you'll hear this in a second. Uh, so I'm just going to, instead of having you stand and read the whole text, I'm just going to kind of weave it in this morning. But if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to have you open to Ephesians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves today. And I'm going to pick up at verse 1. And in the NIV, verse 1 says this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Oh, it's a beautiful verse. In other translations, like the NRSV, it starts out this way. It says, therefore. So then, therefore, those two words can be used interchangeably. There's no big deal there. But the therefore offers a fun wordplay for us. Almost a dad joke, but there's meaning to it. Therefore, live your lives worthy of the calling you have received. I have a friend that is a pastor that anytime therefore is in a text that he's preaching, he likes to say to the congregation, we need to ask ourselves, what is it there for? It's almost a dad joke, right? Almost. But I think it's true. I think there's real reason to ask ourselves, what does the therefore mean? Paul has been speaking to us through the first three chapters in this very important way, like un un revealing to us what God's work is in the world. And, and maybe more accurately, it would say not just God's work in the world generically, but really what God's work in the world is through the church. Us, the saints, that's who he, he's addressed this letter to. 
And so if we've been paying attention, if you've been reading, if you've been listening to Ephesians at all as we've been going through it, you might recall that in Ephesians chapter 1, we were given some significant verbs in the first 14 verses. I don't have time to go through them all, but I've pointed them out several times because I don't want you to forget this, that Paul says to us that, that God has blessed us, that God has chosen us, that God has destined us, or some texts say predestined us, to be his children, sons and daughters. Oh, those are good verbs, good works that God is doing in us. In chapter 2, we find out that God saves us by grace. Multiple times we read that in chapter 2. We find out that God is a creator of poems or of art, that God is a craftsman, and that you are his handiwork, his poem that he is writing to the world. And finally, we heard last week that this same God is also the God that brings down ancient walls of division. Paul has all of that, the first three chapters that he's written, he has all of that in his mind— when he comes to this transition to chapter four, 4, and he writes, therefore. So we need to ask ourselves, what is there for? It's there to remind us of all of that's gone before, but also it is to connect us into the present. Therefore is a thing that relates us, a word that relates to the past, what has come before, but it also then is asking for it to become alive in the present right now. So remember those first three chapters. Remember those verbs. Remember those statements. Remember that you're called saint. Remember all of that. Therefore, Paul says, live a life worthy. Be completely humble, he continues in verse 2, and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Whoa. God, Paul is asking for us in the word therefore, or then in the NIV, to remember all that's come before so that we can now respond. Because remember, God's grace is response-enabling grace. You understand that, right? You understand what I mean when I say that. Some people will talk about it as responsive, responsible grace, or re grace that allows us to respond. God is asking us to participate. And it, in fact, not just asking, there's a, this invitation for us to now do the work that he is offering to us, to follow up what he's doing in our lives. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received, says Paul. Now, it's clear that Paul isn't offering us just moments of goodness as Christians. As if we're just going to sprinkle in the Holy Spirit here and there and a little bit, but our lives generally are the same. No, he's asking for a whole change in us, isn't he? Your whole life should be lived in a worthy manner, not just some of your life. All of your life lived in a worthy manner. 
We're called to be changed through and through, to become different people. To become different. This is clear, I think, is in lots of places in Scripture, but an illustration of this that we need to keep in mind are actual name changes in Scripture. There are lots of places in the Bible where there's a conversion story, a salvation story, a transformation that takes place, and actual name change is a part of that. And many of us in here know that the author of this very text, Paul, had this happen in his life. So we have some little people with us today. So I'm going to ask a question. This isn't a rhetorical question. I often do that. Uh, This is an actual question that I want children to answer if they can. Does anybody in here, raise your hand, any children in here, raise your hand if you know what Paul's original name was. Does anybody know it? Maybe in just a second because it's pretty quiet. All right, kids, that's all right. It's all right because I'm going to meet you after church in the back. And if you can tell me what the answer is, you're going to hear it in just a moment, then I'm going to give you a treat, okay? So what is it? Saul. It was pretty easy because it was only one letter change, right? All right, so I went to the store, Sam, and I bought Smarties. I don't really care if you like Smarties or not, but I bought Smarties for one thing only, so that I could say Smarties for Smarties, because I'm a dad, and I think that's funny. (laughs) Name change. You, like Paul, maybe have met Jesus Christ. His was on the road to Damascus. So radical the conversion, his name is changed. He embodies this whole new reality in the name Paul. You probably didn't get a name change. I didn't get a name change. But figuratively, we did get name changes. You understand that, right? In Paul's language in Ephesians and elsewhere in his writings, he's going to talk about how we used to be sinners, but now we're what? Saints. You're getting it. All right. Saints. Now, more commonly, we don't use that language all that often, but more commonly, it might sound something more like this. I used to be Dustin. And that Dustin used to live for himself. He was consumed by his own wants, his own desires, his own passions. Before he concerned himself about anyone else's, he was mostly self-centered. He was chained, as we read it, or sang today in our, our song, chained to the sins in his life. But his life was intersected by Jesus Christ. So that Dustin no longer is held captive to sin, but is now united to Jesus and has become a Christian. Now I know Christian isn't always received as the greatest word these days. But let's just remember what Christian stands for. A follower of Jesus Christ. A more literal translation of Christian is little Christ. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. This is not just a casual title we throw on ourselves and just live however we want. 
This is a title, a name change that suggests that we are to be more like Jesus Christ so that if somebody hasn't met me in 10 years, they should see me as somebody that is a little bit different because I'm becoming more like Jesus every day. That's the thought, isn't it? That we are not just going to stay the same and carry this title around, but we are actually going to be changed. We sing this today as well, that we are raised in him. That in him we live. Guess what, friends? If we live in Jesus Christ, then we are going to be different. Amen? That's Christian. A follower of Jesus Christ. A radical transformation. A different person. Somebody that is becoming more like Jesus. Paul says to us, look, God has done all of this. He continues to work in and through you. So that you can live a life that matters. And it seems to me that Paul could have gone a lot of directions at this point. He could have chosen any number of things to, to follow up, to unpack. What does it mean for us to live a life that is worthy? It seems like there are lots of good and godly things he could say at this point. But did you notice, really he emphasizes one thing for us. Particularly in verses 3 through 6, we heard this. Unity. The one thing that Paul wants to say to Christians, therefore, you've heard all the good work that God is doing in and through the church. Therefore, what is your part? Where do you step into this? Unity, he says. Unity. Now, I don't want you to miss verse 2. Verse 2, it seems to me, is like the soil that the seed, if we imagine see, uh, unity as a kind of seed of, of God's kingdom at work, that it's planted, that it needs soil to grow, to, to flourish. Well, the soil, it seems to me, is verse 2, where Paul describes humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another, or what I'm going to call tenacity. Unity can't happen without us being humble enough to admit we are wrong from time to time. Divisions, it seems to me, are born out of pride. Our inability to admit that we might have weaknesses, that we might not know everything, that we in fact might be wrong. Pride demands that we are always right and never wrong. But humility recognizes the truth of who we really are. And who are you? Well, Paul declares you to be saints. But are you yet fully realized saints? In order for us to go from the declared saints to actually becoming saints, guess what a large part of the process is? Us becoming humble. Because not only is unity built or, or grows in, this, in the soil of humility, guess what else does? Holiness. You becoming, growing into this sainthood that, that Christ wants you to become involves you becoming humble enough to admit that guess what? You need to grow. You're not always right. I'm not always right. Humility. So too is gentleness needed. Divisions are constructed, it seems to me, on harsh words and actions. How can we be united, really, if we are brutal with each other? 
How can families be, have unity if we treat each other with unkindness? How can churches be united if we are harsh in our appraisals of each other, always assuming the worst? Unity and harshness, it seems to me, are like mixing oil and water, and it just doesn't work, does it? And so, if we try to mix in harshness, unkindness, all the while thinking that we're working towards unity, it's not going to happen because unity never wins out in that scenario. Unity also requires patience. I can't imagine any meaningful relationship lasting without patience, can you? But it's not as if you and I can just force ourselves to be patient. We can't just wake up and say, well, I'm going to be patient today. We have to actually practice it. Which, friends, is a kind of act of patience in and of itself, isn't it? We have to practice. What do I mean by that? Well, we have to practice not saying our words out loud before we have sort of settled on them. We can't just speak angry words. We have to hold back. We can't just unload on somebody. We first need to go to God before we sort through, before we speak those words, before we unload, before we burden somebody else. We need to invite God into this process, into these emotions, into these things that we're feeling. That's practice, isn't it? I've found in my own life, and I'm sure many of you have found this as well, That when I practice this way, when I invite God into my real emotions, my hardships, my struggles, my anger, my frustration, when I invite God into that space before I invite anyone else, guess what I, I find? I'm reminded that God is patient with me. I'm reminded of God's forgiveness for me. I'm reminded of God's loving kindness. His hesed is the, is the Hebrew word for that. It's an important Hebrew word. Hesed, loving kindness. God's faithfulness mixed with love and li- mixed with kindness. It's gentle. That's what God offers me. And I discover that when I invite God into that space and I begin to remember those things, that suddenly it's much easier for me to be patient with that other person then. Right? That's practice. We have to practice it. And this isn't easy work, of course. And maybe this is why Paul rounds out this list with this idea of bearing with one another, or what I want to call tenacity. We're not going to give up easily on each other. That's the church. We're not going to write each other off the moment we say the wrong thing, the moment we hurt one another's feelings, because we are still human, aren't we? And so we are going to say things that we regret. We are going to do things that we regret. And the church is supposed to be tenacious in its relationship. It is supposed to stick together. It is supposed to bear with one another. And young people, teenagers, I hope that this is what you believe about the church and this church in particular. We want to bear with you. And we hope that you will bear with us. We live in a culture that is really adept and really, I think, quick to cancel each other. Whenever you cross a line, whenever you do something wrong, we should be called on it, of course, 
But I don't know that the call is to cancel each other. Because the call that we've been given in the church is not to cancel each other when we've been offended or when we've been wrong. But what are we to do? Bear with each other. Be tenacious. Stick together. This, my friends, I think is the soil of unity in the church. And unity in the church is not some ethereal, it's not some utopian idea to Paul. You need to understand this. He really believes that this can happen. He's so committed to this that he describes it in the, word, in the use of seven versions of the word one. He writes, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and finally one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven repetitions of the word one. The bedrock of the church, the bedrock of our unity is this idea that there is oneness with us, that somehow God in his amazing work in us, remember chapters one through three, God is at work. Look what God is doing. All of that comes together in our lives. Therefore, we become one body, united together. The pinnacle of this, or maybe to punctuate this, is this idea of the fourfold alls in the last part of that. It's as if Paul is saying, therefore, church, because what God's done, you be one. You be united of course, it's not your own heart, own work independent of God. It's the Holy Spirit inspiring, leading, convicting us to do this. But this is your vocation, church. This is your calling. This is what it means to live a life worthy is to be united to each other. Amen. Ah, oh, guess what happens when the world sees that we are living in unity? our unity begins to get outside the walls of the church so that all people begin to realize, oh, that's not just for them, but that's for me too. They get invited into the unity that's embodied in the church so that church isn't contained by walls, but church begins to move out into the community. And as the church moves out into the community, and as we reflect Christ in the community, others in the community begin to think that I must be part of the all. Because God is the God of all, right? Not just some. The God of all. This is the work that we've been called to is to declare to the world, look, God is the God of all, and you can be a part of this. You can be united to us as we are united to Christ. I, I think this is what the church is for. Now, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what I just said, which is good. That'd be weird if I didn't. <laughs> I really do believe it. I don't think this is utopian. Um, it's hard. I, I, as I'm reading Ephesians, I, I said this last week, and I agree with it this week. I think these words that were penned like 2,000 years ago seem to be like the antidote to a lot of our societal problems right now. How there's like real power here. 
And I think many of you want to say the same, like, yes, this is good. We need to have unity in the church. We need to be united to one another. This is good. This is the work that God is doing. But I also know that unity has been used in such a way that it is not a nice word for some people. There might be some in this space that even bristle at the idea of what I'm saying because you're not actually hearing unity when I say unity. You're hearing uniformity. And I certainly know that when we in the church talk about unity outside of the church, a lot of people hear uniformity. And what you need to understand is that when people hear uniformity, they, fe- they hear an oppressive kind of unity, an oppressive, forced, mandatory way of living so that I, if I want to be accepted by this community, I have to look this way, I have to dress this way, I have to be this way in order for me to be embraced community. And if I don't, then I'm cut off. I'm separate. I'm outside. But I don't think that's what Paul's describing here, is he? Because on the heels of this oneness that he talks about, immediately he transitions that that grace is apportioned. That each of us is given grace for our own lives. The exact grace that I need isn't, isn't what you necessarily need because you haven't lived the same life that I've lived, but you get the grace that you need and I get the grace that I need so that together we've been given grace, thanks be to God, but it's been done individually, right? And then he follows that up with that some, some are apostles, some are are preachers, some are teachers, some are prophets. We could think about 1 Corinthians 12 and the body at this point that each of us are unique. Each of us are created in the image of God. But guess what? Each of us don't, aren't the sum total of it. We have to be knit together. I had, I had Christian friends that really, I think, helped me to visualize. I, never, I didn't grow up in a church that was oppressive in the idea of uniformity as a part of unity. But when we were pastoring in California, we met this couple at Starbucks of all places. And Mark just stopped me one day. I was writing my sermons in Starbucks. I got tired of sitting in the office. And I found that when I got outside the office, I, all, like the community suddenly saw us as their pastors. And he saw that I had my Bible out and I was writing a sermon and he just asked me, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he said, I'd like to talk to you. And so we over the course of the next several months, had conversations mostly at Starbucks. But then we began to hang out together, and we went to their house. They came to ours. They grew up in a different denomination, a different kind of church. All the men had to have beards. The women had to wear dresses. They had to cover their heads. When you went into church, it was men on one side, women on the other. It was, there were all these ways that you had to conform to the way that they did church. And if you didn't conform to this pattern, they had biblical reasons for it, of course, but there was no, there was no space for arguing this because the moment that you stepped outside of the conformity, the uniformity of it, you were questioned. So my friend Mark, he really had an experience where he would go to church and, and he did it mostly out of fear. But uh, God intersected his life in a way that suddenly Jesus became real to him. 
Not just as an idea, not just as God out there, but as a personal savior to him. What I would hope for each of us. What we talk about all the time in our church. But that event led to him being questioned. Because suddenly Mark was different. He still had the beard, but he was different. He didn't fit to the pattern that they had in their church. And he would begin to act differently, and so much so that one day he was called before the church. Elders on the platform, congregation where you are, and Mark was in a trial of excommunication. They presented the argument to the congregation. The congregation would stand for the vote of yes. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being this person? One of the evidences presented against Mark was this, and I quote, Mark loves Jesus more than he loves the church. What? How does that make sense? What? But in their theology, in order to be right with God, you had to be right with the church. He was stepping out of the conformity of the church. He was doing things that that were different. And so no longer was he in good standing with the church, so therefore he couldn't be in good standing with God. And all the while I'm having conversations with Mark thinking, oh my word, look what Jesus is doing in his life. There are people in our lives, in the world, that have experienced a kind of Christianity that hears unity or thinks of unity as uniformity. That you and I have to be the same, and we do not have to be the same. We don't. You are an individual in Jesus Christ. I am an individual in Jesus Christ. I have a story that matters to God. You have a story that matters to God. Guess what the power of the church is? Not that we have to blend or pretend that all these stories don't matter, that we all are exactly the same. No, God is weaving us together. So that your story, your life, wedded to mine or, or knitted to mine and all of us together begins to reflect an amazingly diverse God. Do you understand that? Do you understand how amazing and how big our God is? Paul says at the end of this passage in verse 15, instead speaking the truth in love, we in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Each part, each person, because you, in part, reflect God in this world. Not all of God, of course, you can't do that, but a part. And I reflect a part. And when we come together as the church, we are united so that we present more of God to the world. Thanks be to God. I can't help but think of Revelation chapter 7 as we come to an end here. As I think about the idea of unity in the church, not uniformity, but unity within diversity, I hear these words and I look forward to the church really embodying these words. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Do you hear the diversity? 
but they're all called to do one thing. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We are called to be a part of that great witness. That's what it means for you and I to live a life worthy of the call that we have received. This is the gift of God to the world, the church, the one place that might actually understand that we can have unity within diversity, that we don't have to have uniformity. Well, these are challenging words. And it seems to me they definitely are words that you can't choose to do on your own and I can't choose to do on my own. We need grace to do this, don't we? Today we get to come to the table. It's Christ's table. It's his invitation. It's one table that brings us together as many parts united together all to receive the same thing. But the version or, or the kind of grace that you need may be different. Some of us in here might need salvific grace today. Grace to just say yes to Jesus for the first time in your life. Say, I'm tired of living on my own. I'm tired of being a part of this other narrative that is so divisive and so ugly. I want to be a part of something that is unifying, that is bringing people together. I want to say yes to Jesus. Others of us have made that commitment. We've lived it, but we also understand that we are not yet fully saints, are we? We're not holy through and through. So we come to the table to receive the grace of sanctification. Make us more like Jesus today. It seems to me that a good thing to do before we come to the table is to remind ourselves of our oneness. So I'm going to have you stand with me. And we're going to re recite together the Nicene Creed. Now, there are a lot of words in this creed, but you need to know something. This is our first ecumenical creed in the Christian church. It was written in the year 325. The Council of Nicaea, they gathered together, and they decided this is what it means to be Christian. And what you need to understand is since then, through the ages... And right now, today, all around the world, there are men and women, children, saying these words, no matter what their denominational affiliation is. Unity within diversity. Let's be a part of that by reciting what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate.
He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Christian, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. God, we want to be a part of this amazing story that you're writing, this witness. We want our lives to be a living testimony that you are a God that is bringing together all these different pieces. It doesn't matter tribe, it doesn't matter nationality, it doesn't matter our language, what we look like, our gender, our economics, our educational level, and none of it matters because you love each and every one of us. And you are calling us, inviting us, pulling us into this family. God, we want to be a part of it. So as we come to your table today, we come ready to receive receive the good gifts that you're offering us so that we can be your sons and daughters. We can be truly transformed, truly changed to become more like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So God, would you grant us grace right now? Would you grant us salvific grace? Would you save us if we need to be saved in this moment? Would you give us sanctification? Would you cleanse us through and through? For we believe that as we partake today of these elements, just bread and juice, that really they are symbols to us of something so much more profound. It's heaven and earth being united. It's your kingdom coming in us, your people. Make it so today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.